Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. If you're new today, welcome. We're glad that you're here, and I hope that you feel a sense of hospitality and a sense of warmth, and I also have some encouragement for you. Uh, As of uh, next week, you will no longer have to sit in plastic chairs ever again. In Jesus' name, thank you, God. I am so sick of plastic chairs. You want to know what church planting's like? You're sitting in it. You're sitting in it right now. Uh, This is also our final Sunday in a rented facility. What a miracle, guys. We've been given a building for free, and I'm so grateful, and I cannot speak more to God's favor over the last three and a half years of navigating this relationship, and I am blown away. And so no more sleeping on a friend's couch, no more renting an apartment. We own our own house, baby, and I'm pumped, and I'm excited, and I'm looking forward to it. I do feel like the last year, in some regard, coming out of the pandemic has been this reorienting of our community. And it's been a reorientation for the whole church in the West at large. It continues to be, I think. Um, But in some ways, I feel like God has been cultivating almost this new core team, this new community that is now becoming Emmaus Church. And it's really exciting. And so I'm looking forward to jumping in next week, our first gathering at Reams Drive, which is now on Google Maps. Come on, uh, is going to be happening. And so we're really excited about that. So we are in week five of our teaching series called Summer in Rome. Over the last two weeks, we have heard from Cameron and Vania expounding on and teaching from Paul's second unit of thought in this letter, specifically Romans chapter five through Romans chapter eight. And I thought they did a brilliant job. What do you guys think? I thought they did a fantastic job. Well-crafted, well-thought-out job. And I love to see the diversity of voices in our community and the different approaches to teaching. So very encouraged by that. As we noted at the beginning of this teaching series, to bring somewhat of a basic framework for all of us to operate operate out of and to understand Romans, Paul covers four different units of thought in this letter. And the letter is bookended by this proclamation of the gospel. The gospel in Greek, as we've said before, is euangelion, or it's the royal announcement of Jesus, his kingdom, and the implications of that reality. And Paul bookends the whole letter with the proclamation of the gospel. These four units of thought, very quickly, that help provide some understanding at a high level, are Romans chapters 1 through 4, which look at Jesus as a rescuer, because Paul has a very Christocentric vision in terms of his writing. He focuses on Jesus as rescuer in Romans 1 through 4. Romans 5 through 8 focus on Jesus as representative. And then Romans chapter 9 through 11 focus on Jesus as reconciler. This will be the unit we're in today. Romans 12 through 16 then focuses on Jesus as a restorer. And so this provides a high-level basic framework to operate out of as we navigate the dense and challenging and tumultuous waters that is Romans. This is a very dense and complex letter because of all the ground that Paul the Apostle covers. Some might say it is a theological treatise or a systematic theology, 
But that leaves out a lot of the other topics that Paul covers in this letter, such as ethics and morality, as well as navigating diverse communal dynamics. As much as Paul is a theologian, and he is, he's a scholar among scholars, he is also a missionary with a pastoral heart seeking that all be changed and transformed by the person of Jesus. And living into that together. That's Paul's ultimate desire, I think, for all of us. To encounter the transforming work of the Holy Spirit by way of the resurrected King Jesus. Though Romans is for all of us, and it is, all the scriptures are for all of us, it was written to a multi-ethnic group of house churches, totaling no more than 100 people, located within the urban core of the most powerful and influential city in the Western world at the time, that being Rome, Italy. A comparable for us, I think, when we think about Rome in this context, for us as, as modern Westerners, would be a letter written to urbanites located in Washington, D.C. That kind of provides a parallel. Rome was a, a political center, the political center for the entire world, an empire that spanned roughly 25 to 30 percent of the entire world's population at the time. And so just imagine you're writing a letter as a pastor or missionary or theologian to a group of of Christians or believers in the urban core of Washington, D.C. This provides for us an awareness of the context. And today, I have good news for you. And I also have some very hard news. Not bad news, hard news. The good news is that Romans chapters 12 through 16 is all praxis. It's all practical theology for everyday living. How do we put into practice a lot of what Paul is teaching? What are the daily implications? Very pragmatic. The hard news is that we aren't in Romans chapter 12 today. Romans chapters 9 through 11 could quite possibly be the deepest and most debated waters of the entire letter to the Romans. Romans 7 and 8 kind of begins heading in this direction, but Romans 9 especially has been the topic of great discussion and discourse amongst theologians for centuries. And I'm saying let's get in this little tiny boat together and go into a storm. Let's make this happen today, okay? So I'm walking a fine line between seeking to pastor you in the way of Jesus, as well as theologize with you regarding what might feel like abstract, esoteric, or arcane, out there ideas about how God's providence and his sovereignty interacts with the agency and freedom of his people on the basis of potentially the most polarizing words in Christian theology, predestination and election. Who's excited to be in church today? <laughs> Some of you are like, can I leave now? Is it, is it okay? Is the door unlocked? <laughs> I do want to get into this conversation a bit this morning because I feel like it is relatively important despite some of you who might disagree. And some of you might have come in this morning with presuppositions or preconceived ideas, and that's totally okay. Um, 
But I do want us to kind of have an awareness of street-level theological terms that we use even when we don't know it. For instance, all things happen for a reason. That is a profound theological statement. You are making assumptions when you say such a thing. Or it's okay, whatever happens, happens. God's in control. Another profound theological statement that we make on a street level view every single day. And so I want us to kind of be aware of these ideas and the grounding of such ideas or the lack of grounding for such ideas. But before we get into this conversation, I do want to give a kind of condensed overview of this unit because this, again, is one of the most debated, discussed units of thought in the entire New Testament, let alone the entirety of the scriptures. And theologians have been debating this for centuries And I have a few minutes here this morning with you to pastor you in the way of Jesus. So I'm not going to parse it all out. I don't have decades to do that. But I do want us to kind of lean into it just a bit. If you remember from the opening talk, which you can go back to on podcasts or on YouTube uh, in this teaching series, I provided a lay of the land regarding what was happening in Rome at the time of this letter being written. This is a mixed group of Jewish and Gentile Christians, or Roman Christians, but more specifically a group that is now majority Gentile because all Jews in the late 40s AD were kicked out of the city under Emperor Claudius, but have just re-entered the city of Rome roughly five years after, now under the rule of Nero. And there is now some ethnic cultural, and theological tension rising amongst these house churches between these two groups of people. So that provides for you the pastoral situation that Paul's navigating in Rome. Here are the two primary tensions that the Roman church is facing. Here's the first. Jews still seem to believe that righteousness can be obtained through works of the law as well as through their ethnic lineage. That's tension number one. The second tension is that Gentiles, on the other hand, have this temptation to be antinomian, which is essentially to say, I can do whatever I want now because of the grace of God. Nothing else really matters anymore. Nothing, you know, you don't have to tell me what to do. You know, it fits perfectly with modern millennials in our moment right now. That's the definition of being antinomian. No one can tell me what to do. So Gentiles have this temptation in the first century, as well as the temptation to dispel Israel and its history altogether. Because they're thinking to themselves, okay, Israel, you've had your chance, you've had your day, you've had your moment, but now we're the church. We are God's chosen people. And Paul is like, not so fast, not so fast. In Romans 9 through 11, he's working through these two tensions at hand. In fact, I love Paul because he is masterful at putting both groups in their rightful place. Just like a masterful parent discipling two kids at the same time. We were at uh, the beach a couple weeks ago, and I I saw a parent who had two young kids, and both of them were fighting each other, going back and forth, and it was masterful to watch this dad put both kids in timeout and explain to them why each of them were wrong. And I'm like, this is what Paul is doing in Romans. (laughs) And so I started talking to him about theology and Paul, and he was like, I'm just kidding, I didn't actually do that. But he's doing this. He critiques both. And we live in a moment, friends. I'm not going to go on a rabbit trail. We live in a moment that requires critique of both sides of the polarized spectrum in our society. 
both have to be put in their rightful place. And they will be by God. Okay? So Paul's not choosing one or the other. He's saying, no, no, both of you got some things you need to work through. Both of you have some, um, some ideologies that you need to flesh out that aren't complete. So in this unit, Paul is primarily focusing on Israel. He's primarily focusing on Israel, but he's primarily speaking to a majority Gentile community. There are some Jews in the mix for sure, as I said, but he's focusing the talk on Israel, but speaking to majority Gentiles. And he's looking at the past, present, future, and the incorporation of Gentiles into the family of God, specifically Israel, Israel's past, present, and future, and the reconciliation of Gentiles into the family of God due to the work of the Messiah, Jesus, on the cross, and now extending God's righteousness and blessing to all of the nations and all of the world. This was the original job description given in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, that the people of Abraham, Israel, would be a blessing to the nations. And now we see that Jesus has come and he's bringing the nations into him and extending blessing now to the entire world because Israel, remember, failed at their vocation. So Romans 9 is about Romans, excuse me, Romans 9 is about Israel's past. Romans 10 is about Israel's present. Romans 11 is about Israel's future and the inclusion of Gentiles in it all. And I want you to look around the room right now. You're looking at Gentiles. Everyone in this room is a Gentile, non-Jewish ethnically. Okay? Anybody have any Jewish friends? Not religiously, but ethnically. Anybody at all that's Jewish ethnically? Very cool. Awesome. So this is very important conversation for such friends, okay? All of this is wrapped up into a metaphor in Romans chapter 11 of an olive tree that's given, speaking of this reconciliation of the two groups into one olive tree. But before we kind of dive in, I want to just mention briefly for some of us, the people of God begins with Israel, not us. In fact, when we even say the church, that's a little bit later on in the first few centuries of the church. That's kind of foreign language in terms of the defining mark of the people of God. It's always familial language in the scriptures. Church or ecclesia means the gathered ones or called out ones, okay? But what God is doing is he is redeeming the world through families and specifically through a family, okay? But the people of God begins with Israel and then includes Gentiles because of Christ, the church doesn't replace Israel, okay? The church, as we know it, the global church does not replace Israel. Rather, Israel and Gentiles make up the one gathered family of God in Christ Jesus. We see this in Galatians 3.28 and Ephesians chapter 2. All Ephesians 2 is about one new humanity. Galatians 3.28, Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. He's not saying there's not difference, but he, what he is saying is there's no hierarchy any longer. You're both equal. You're equal. You're one in Christ Jesus. The two are reconciled together. Now, you tracking so far? Okay, awesome. Here we go. So this unit of thought, Romans 9 through 11, is referred to as a chiasm in a literary sense because Paul is balancing either ends of the section 
And he's drawing the eye and ear to a centralized statement, specifically in Romans chapter 10, which we read earlier. Like many Psalms, this unit opens with lament. Romans 9, 1 through 5 is lament. It's Paul lamenting. And it ends with praise. Psalms function very similar. Lament ends in praise. In the middle, there's meditation and petition. Paul also has some 40-plus references to the Old Testament in this section alone. 40-some references to the Hebrew Scriptures in this section alone, meaning there is Scripture all in Romans 9 through 11, a lot of the Old Testament. So when we say, oh, the Old Testament doesn't matter, that's not what the New Testament teaches. The Old Testament matters greatly. So Romans 9, verses 2 through 5, here's what Paul says in his lament. He opens up by saying, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race or my own ethnic group. Ethnos is the Greek word here. The people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Now, you might be wondering, why is Paul in such anguish? Why is Paul so discouraged right now? He's been going on what felt like a theological rant for the last eight chapters, and all of a sudden, we see some emotion in Paul. Paul is discouraged, and he's in anguish, because of fellow Jews who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Who still seem to believe that salvation and righteousness are a right due to their physical descent or their ethnicity, as well as performance of the law. But Paul goes on and articulates that just being ethnically Jewish doesn't automatically mean that one is a covenant member of Israel. In fact, he says, not all of Israel is the true Israel. And it seems kind of paradoxical in a sense, but we'll get to this in just a moment. But he says, not all of Israel is Israel. And he actually uh, speaks to this idea over and over again, that one is not just a covenant member because of their ethnicity or their physical descent. In other words, just because you wear a Lakers jersey does not mean you are on the Lakers. I love those jerseys that people buy and they customize and it's got their last name on the back. Those are the cheesiest jerseys ever. Please don't buy one. If you have one, I'm really sorry if you're offended right now. Um, like, so just because you have a jersey that says Lakers, that does not mean you're on the court with LeBron. Same kind of idea here in some regard. Now, it's a little off, but I think it helps in kind of understanding this dense work of Paul. And he says that it's always been this way. This is nothing new. He contrasts in this section, he contrasts the people of physical descent and the people of quote-unquote promise. He contrasts the two. The children of promise are those who live by faith. And we see that articulated again by Paul in Galatians chapter 4, if you want to go read some more. But in Romans chapter 9, verses 8 through 13, this is when we begin moving into the deepest, darkest waters of the New Testament of the Scriptures. 
In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children. There again, here he is saying it's not just about physical descent or ethnicity, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election, there's a key word, might stand. Not by works, but by him who calls, she was told. The the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The first thing we have to have in our kind of theological pocket is that God always and has always, as I mentioned earlier, selected not only a family, but a subset within a family called a remnant. God always chooses a subset within a larger family. For instance, Isaac and not Ishmael, Jacob and not Esau, Jesus followers and not Jesus rejectors. We kind of see this lineage idea, lineage of promise versus the ethnic lineage on both sides, so to speak. God always chooses a remnant from within. And so the line of promise is coming out of the line of physical descent, but it's not based on works or performance at all. And so now, here is where we get into the much debated discussion and conversation around predestination and election. The debate that occurs primarily between Calvinists and Arminians alike, culminating in these few verses. So, where does the tension lie? You read this and you're like, I don't really understand the tension. The tension lies between predetermined or predestined individual election and corporate or communal election. Perfect timing for a siren. This is the tension. In the the Calvinistic and Arminian debate, theologically, the tension primarily is about individual versus corporate election as well as um, predestination and divine foreknowledge. I'm going to throw a lot out there today because, again, I believe in your intellectual capacity to be able to navigate this conversation. However, I just want to also clarify this. At the center of biblical election isn't so much salvation from sin, but rather vocation and missional purpose. If we're not careful, election becomes synonymous with salvation, but that's not consistent through the narrative of the scriptures. Israel was chosen in the Old Testament to experience the promised land, but not everyone in Israel experienced the promised land. There are other people chosen or elected by God to be used who were not saved in the Old Testament. Even Paul earlier in this letter is saying that some people in Israel, they're part of God's chosen people, but they won't be saved. They will be judgment on them. So election is actually about vocation and missional purpose, meaning God has chosen you as an instrument for his redemptive purposes in the world. He wants to use you for his 
purposes. God elects or chooses for purpose and service, not just individual salvation. Again, I mentioned Genesis chapter 12. We see the Abrahamic covenant. God chooses Abraham and his family, and he elects them and brings them into covenant, and he gives them a calling. He gives them a purpose, to be a blessing to the nations. So, individual election versus corporate election. That's the direction we're going today. Now, many will look at the Jacob I loved and Esau I hated as a confirmation of individual election and predetermined salvation. This is the basis of majority in the Calvinistic line of thought regarding election and predestination. The problem is that the individual isn't the focus of Paul's unit in 9 through 11. The focus in Romans 9 through 11 is actually the nation of Israel as a whole. The whole community, the one corporate entity, made up of individuals, yes, but the corporate entity is Paul's focus in Romans 9 through 11. Remember, at the very beginning, Paul is in anguish over the nation of Israel. He's in anguish over the corporate community that's been chosen by God. And to reference Isaac and Jacob being chosen before time over Ishmael and Esau is to illustrate and reinforce that God had elected the entire people of Israel to be a royal priesthood over the Moabites and the Edomites. They, they represented nations. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 32, is quoting from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where he says, quoting Yahweh, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, is he just talking about the three individual patriarchs and their God? No. He is talking about the God of all of Israel. The God of all of those who are Hebrew. He's not just talking about the God of the individual patriarchs. He's talking about them as representatives of the entire nation. When we speak of the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and the God of Abraham, what we're talking about is Israel as a whole. Now, Dr. Jerry Walls, who's a philosopher and theologian, says this. Paul distinguishes the irrevocable call of the nation of Israel as a whole from the fate of individual Israelites. While the final destination of the people of God is absolutely certain, the future of any given individual is determined by his or her continued faith and trust in God. Now, I realize some of you in the room, are you're, you're getting a little antsy. You're getting a little antsy right now, and that's totally okay. But this all being said, in my own theology, I would lean more towards a corporate view of election and predestination. Putting it out there. Corporate view of election and predestination. I affirm both of them. Do not be afraid of these words. Both are biblical and all through the scriptures. I just see them, and I'm not the only one who sees them, in the collective and the communal sense. Now remember, we live in 2022 in the modern West that's highly individualistic. It has been since modernity. It has been over the last few centuries. 
And a lot of this individualistic vision of salvation has actually come out of the cultural view of individualism. But it's actually foreign into the ancient world. And our individual salvation specifically in connection to corporate election is conditional on the basis of faith. In other words, our joining of the collective whole, the predetermined whole, is foreknown by God. He foresees it. But freely chosen in our own volition and our response to the extended grace of God. Now, I have a ton of friends who are hyper-Calvinists. I love them. We have great conversations, and they love the scriptures, um, and we have wonderful debates around this conversation. And so if you are on that end and you want to debate a little bit and it'd be healthy, come on, let's do it. I would love to do that. But the accusation tends to be, well, that's, that's you achieving salvation based on works. That's a works-based salvation. Well, I already talked a bit about how election and salvation are not one and the same throughout the scriptures. But let me, let me give you an analogy briefly. If I were to say, I'm giving you a car for free, it's a gift. Here are the keys. And you use those keys freely, and you go start the car, and you drive off. That does not mean that you have any sort of uh, skin in the game, that you achieve that car on your own. No, no, no. You just responded to the gift. You responded to the free gift that was given to you. By you using the key that was given is not based on works. It's still the gift of God that is given to you. But we have the freedom to use the keys or not use the keys. It's based on us, primarily because we are made in the image of God. God is free, and humans, therefore, are made in his likeness and also have freedom and agency to be able to choose. Now, some will also say, well, if God knows all things, does that not also mean he determines all things? In the realm of theology, divine determinism and foreknowledge are two different ideas. Let me give you another example to kind of help bring awareness. The end is determined, but the means of which we get to the end are not. Now, again, we can, we can wrestle and debate in this, this concept and idea. Here's an example. You might record a sporting event. Okay, you might record a soccer match or something. And you go back and watch it after the game is over. You know the final score. You know the exact final score of the game. You go back and watch it. But does your knowledge of the final score impinge upon the freedom of a player to pass the ball to another player on the field? No, it doesn't. Okay? So, this being said, God foreknows... But that does not mean that the way in which we move to the end is determined by God. We have freedom and agency in the matter. We respond to God's gift of grace and faith in our own volition. We are not coerced. We are persuaded. And God will continue to persuade you all the day long. When the Son of Man is lifted up, He says, I will draw all men to Myself. I will woo you. So, Another analogy to help break some of this down is, let's say that this afternoon at 4.30, out of RDU, out of Raleigh, there's a plane that's heading to Los Angeles. There's a plane that's heading. It's been predetermined to leave at 4.30 and arrive at 9.30. Predetermined. And you have been given a free ticket to Los Angeles and to aboard this plane. 
that plane's going to Los Angeles regardless if you own it or not. But you have been endowed with freedom to choose to get on the plane or not. You as an individual haven't been determined to be in Los Angeles at 9.30 that evening, but because of corporate election, that plane is going to Los Angeles. You then have the freedom to respond to get on the plane or not. The free ticket has been extended. If individual election was predetermined, or individual salvation was predetermined, then tell me why Paul prays in Romans 10.1, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Or in Romans 11.14 where he says, I hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Or Peter in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Paul writing to Timothy, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God's desire and his will based on the scriptures is that all be saved. But that does not mean all will be saved because we have freedom and choice. And I recognize there's tension. I'm not trying to make it any clearer than it already isn't. I recognize there's tension, but I'm also providing, hopefully, a basis for you to explore this conversation. Again, because we use these street-level theological statements like, well, everything happens for a reason. Actually, maybe you running that red light and hitting that car is actually because you ran the red light. Maybe. Maybe that wasn't God-ordained. Okay? You being involved in sin is not predetermined by God. God is not the author of sin. You chose that. God did not. Okay? I feel like we can hear a pin drop in the room. God desires that all people be saved, though all won't be, because it is only on the basis of faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul articulates this earlier in Romans. Many freely reject Christ and many freely trust in Christ. In fact, many of the early church fathers of the first couple centuries maintained this same sentiment and notion of corporate election and human responsibility. This is not new. This is not just recent uh, theological uh, doctrine. If you go back and read uh, Clement of Rome in the first century, who was actually the bishop of Rome at the very end of the first century, and to be honest, was probably sitting in Rome at the time when this letter, letter excuse me, was being read aloud, wrote this in a letter to the church in Corinth. God chose the Lord Jesus Christ and us through him to be his own special people. Other early church fathers that would affirm corporate election and human responsibility are Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp, and Justin Martyr. Roger Olson, who's a theologian, says this, election is in Christ, but no one is in Christ without faith. Jesus Christ is the center of predestination. He is the predestined one. He is unconditionally elected. And others are either elect in him or reprobates because they are by their own decisions and actions outside of him. God looks on people as either believers or unbelievers in who? Jesus Christ. Thus, Jesus is the foundation of election. Christ is the unconditionally elect one of the new covenant and all those in Christ corporately. 
So Christ is unconditionally elect. Just as in the Old Testament, Israel is the unconditionally elect people of God. In the New Testament, Christ is. And all who are in Christ are the elect corporately. Look at Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 through 6. For he chose us, communal language, in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us, there's that word, for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Do you see how many times we see the word in and us in communal language? Christ is the elect ones, and those in him are elect. Karl Barth, who's a famous Swiss theologian, early 20th century, um, who was also a Reformed theologian, but he also believed in the same idea of corporate election and human responsibility. He says this, God's eternal will is the election of Jesus Christ. God's eternal will is the election of Jesus Christ. And now you're, you know why we're going to do a fun activity with snow cones this afternoon and have a hacky sack race because we're getting deep into the weeds this morning. I told you the beginning of Romans, I said, listen, hold on because it's going to be a ride, okay? Romans 9, verse 30 through 32. Let's keep moving. Paul says, Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it, that is, righteousness through faith. But Israel, who did strive for the righteousness that is based on the law, did not succeed in fulfilling the law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works. Into Romans chapter 10, verse 2 through 4. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own They did not submit to God's righteousness. He's talking about Israel. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Look at the language. Everyone who believes. Paul doesn't de-emphasize zeal, striving, or even works. But rather, he rejects them as the definite mechanism for knowing God and redirects that emphasis to faith. He doesn't downplay works and doesn't downplay zeal. He just says that's not the mechanism of salvation. That's not the mechanism of being made righteousness, of being made righteous or knowing Christ. To know Christ is to fulfill the law. To know Christ is to be counted and made righteous. Christ is the only mechanism that can change us because he is the seed planted on the inside of our heart, the seed which bears fruit on the outside. Christ is the only mechanism for you to be made righteous. He's the only mechanism that can change you. This is why Paul goes on to say that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. Why? You can't save yourself. The culture can't save itself through self-medication and through new technologies and through new mechanisms. It is only by the cross of Christ and dying to self and surrendering to him that you might be saved and that you might experience life. There is no other mechanism. You have to go through the cross to get to the resurrection. There's no other way. In the next couple months or so, my hope is that we do a teaching series on looking at the stages of discipleship to Jesus. Because here's what I feel like. A lot of us are so down with the idea of come follow me. 
Matthew 4, yes, of course, Jesus, you're great. You're, you're really cool. You're kind of hip. Like, you got some really cool chacos on, and you talk with a self voice, and you're just really neat, and you probably listen to Bon Iver, and you probably drink tea. Like, you're really cool. And then Matthew 16, Jesus says that if anyone wants to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. You cannot be my disciple unless you die to sin. I think a lot of us in our discipleship to Jesus are at Matthew 15. And we don't want to step through the cross. But that's the way of flourishing. And it was a stumbling block to the Jews because they thought they could achieve salvation because they were ethnically Jewish. And they're like, well, we're God's chosen people. And I'm walking in righteousness with God because of the Torah. Paul says, that's not true. Christ is the only mechanism. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. The message concerning faith that we proclaim, and here it is. This is the message that Paul and the apostles are proclaiming. This is the center kind of axis point of this chiasm in this unit. It is the zoomed in portion. If you declare with your mouth, Notice the conditional statement of if. Notice the volitional nature of if. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, which we articulated is the gospel in three short words, and you believe in your heart, that's active faith, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you Believe in your heart. The heart in the Greek is the word cardia. And it's not just the organ in a person's being, but it's the center of all physical and spiritual life. The center of the personality, the intellect, emotions, and the will. The center of the entire human mechanism is the heart. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you believe at the center of your being, your mind, your emotions, your intellect, your will, your personality, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Philosopher Dallas Willard says, The aim of spiritual formation is not behavior modification, but the transformation of all those aspects of who you and me were or excuse me, of, of, who, of you and me where behavior comes from, the circumcision of the heart. Actions are not impositions on who we are, but are expressions of who we are. They come out of our heart and the inner realities it supervises and interacts with. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Chapter 10, excuse me, Romans chapter 10, verses 10 through 13 now as we begin to close. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Now, you read that face value and say there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Well, there is difference, but not in a hierarchical sense. They're equal. 
Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Listen, friends. As wide as the problem of sin reaches is as wide as the mercy of God grants the possibility of salvation. Sin reaches universal. The work of Christ reaches and the possibility of salvation reaches universal. God's desire is that all would be saved. The key to unlocking the fullness of life is total embodied trust in the person and work of Jesus with every facet of your humanity. Not a portion, all, every bit. Keep in mind this as we close today. Faith is only demonstrated in obedience. That is the only way faith is actually seen. Faith is not, as Vania mentioned last week, I believe, it's not just a mental assent to say, I cognitively believe that God exists, that Jesus is Lord. But faith, pistis in the Greek, pistuo, is an active embodied trust and allegiance to the person and work of Jesus that can only be seen in obedience to him and his teachings. There is no other way faith is demonstrated. If you and I are driving in the car together and we're going to go to Target because who doesn't love to go walk around Target? Come on. I love going to Target. Walmart, you can have it. (laughs) Target, thank you, Lord. We're, We're driving down Wendover or Cone Boulevard or whatever to go to Target, depending on the direction you're coming from. I don't know where you're coming from. And I tell you, hey, turn on Lawndale. If you have faith in me, you will turn down Lawndale. You can't say verbally you have faith and not follow suit. You can't say, I have faith in you and giving me directions for life, but I'm going to go a different way. No, 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 no. Turn down Lawndale. You have faith in me, right? Yeah, yeah, you're great. I'm going to keep going this way. That's not faith. That's self-preservation. And faith is saying, actually, I don't know where Target is. I've never been there before. I'm going to trust that the one driving or the one beside of me in this car, so to speak, knows. And I'm going to follow suit because I have faith in them giving directions. Better yet, how about you just drive the car? Because I don't know what I'm doing. You ever driven with someone before and you're like, they're a terrible driver? Don't look at your spouse. But I'm going to look at mine right now. (laughs) Some people legitimately need God in the front seat and giving them legitimate directions. Faith and obedience go hand in hand. Faith and behavior go hand in hand. Faith requires circumstantial response of behavior. Faith only comes up in circumstances where there is behavior. Faith requires a crossroads of options. Faith requires that. Trust requires options. Either this way or that way. So here's my question as we close. Vania, can you come on up and just strum on the guitar? 
as we wrap up. Because <laughs> I'm sure everyone's brain is about to explode right now. I really hope not. Here's my question. Do you trust the voice of your rabbi? Or do you trust some other voice? Better yet, which voice do you trust? Because here's the deal. We all have a mental map of reality that we're living in. There are plausibility structures in society that we live into. There are worldviews that have been passed down to us. And we have to be able to ask the question, what map am I trusting? Which guide who's been there before am I trusting? Am I trusting the voice of my rabbi? Because here's the deal. The moment that you give full surrender in faith, you begin to walk in a life of fullness and life and abundance and flourishing. But there is going to be a moment where your voice and his voice will conflict. If your voice never conflicts with the voice of Jesus, you're following an avatar that you made, not King Jesus. You should be frustrated with Jesus when you read the scripture. And my greatest desire as a community, especially if we become a man's church, is that we would embark on a journey together, collectively, communally, trusting in the voice of our rabbi Jesus, who doesn't just happen to be a great teacher, but happens to be redeemer and savior and God incarnate and king of the cosmos. Who, just, who has demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. As Vania mentioned last week, there is no other deity represented in the world that has demonstrated their love for us. Not a one. And the invitation for us is to journey together. In the midst of our doubts and our frustrations and our challenges and our trials, and I know they are rampant in the room. In the midst of the, the tensions of life, the chaos, would we walk in this narrow path together on a journey, recognize that Jesus has come up sometimes when we least expect him, just as on the road to Emmaus, and he begins to tell the story of himself and the story that you and I actually live in right now.